Hi guys, this is uh, Richard Band calling from Vancouver in Canada. I always uh, find the show super provocative and, and full of great advice on how to be more conscious about improving my approach to life. But the main thing I, I ask myself um, is how to take some of those wise words and, and approaches that you talk about in the show and turn them into some kind of action that's sustainable in the long run. Maybe another way of putting it would be, you know, how do I take each Tuesday's episode and make it real uh, in my life? That's a voicemail we first received from a listener in Vancouver named Richard. And in essence, what he is asking is, how do we change our behavior? It was one of a few communications we received from listeners within a two-week period, all saying something along the same lines. And so, what else could we conclude except it was a sign from the universe that we are supposed to do a show on behavior change. So I was texting while I was driving and I ended up taking a wrong turn that took me directly past a vitamin shop. And I was just like, this is totally the universe telling me I should be taking calcium. Oh my God. Right? <gasps> universe. <gasps> <laughs> okay, well maybe not a sign from the universe, but here's the deal. We get it and we imagine you do as well. Being someone who consciously takes on change and wants to better themselves, it is very likely you can relate to this. You have an experience, a conversation, you take a class, you read a book, you listen to a podcast, and something grabs your attention. Sometimes it can feel like a two by four to the forehead and you think, oh my gosh, I need to make a change. I am going to start doing that or I am going to stop doing that. Take this podcast alone. In our first 20 episodes, we've tried our best to provide you with a lot of tangible ideas that you can put into action. I challenge you to become 21 days complaint-free starting today. Ask yourself questions on what you feel, just like you might ask someone else. Why do I feel this way? What if you set aside a few hours once a month and went through your digital photos and videos from the past 30 days? And also, I'm going to highly recommend Dr. John Demartini's value determination process, which operates on the simple idea that your values are displayed in your behavior. If you have not reviewed the show on iTunes, wherever you are in the world, please, please, please take a moment to do it. But there is often a big gap between I want to, which is an aspiration, and I've done it, which is taking action and getting a positive outcome. And even if you do succeed at changing something, sustaining that change becomes a whole new challenge for many. So this week, we are going to explore some strategies to effectively change our behavior. How do we take that spark, that desire to change, and turn it into actual change? <laughs> no, no, Nick, 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 sorry. I said actual change, actual behavior change. To rephrase Richard's voicemail to us, uh, you know, how do I take each Tuesday's episode and make it real? And how do we keep it real? Welcome to Where There's Smoke, the show where we explore self-development through the lens of current events, sports, and pop culture. On this week's show, we are exploring behavior change. How do you take an aspiration and make it real? Plus, Where There's Smoke is coming to Vancouver, Chicago, and New York. Stay tuned. And we've got an announcement about our iTunes review drive. My name is Brett Gaida, and I am your host. There's been a lot of conversations over the years around behavior change as it pertains to self-development. For a while, it seemed it was all about mindset, 
self-development programs, gurus, and books proclaiming, you got to believe it, see it, visualize it, and of course, Nike telling us to just do it. And with this worldview, if you did not achieve a change you set out to make, it was because you simply weren't strong enough. You didn't want it enough. You didn't believe. You didn't have the willpower. Then you negotiate with your body to find more strength, but don't you give up on me, Brock. You keep going, you hear me? You keep going, you're doing good, you keep going. Do not quit on me, you keep going. It hurts. I know it hurts, you keep Then it seemed that things started to shift. Voices started to come out of the ether and say, well, wait a second, maybe it's not a willpower issue at all. Maybe the gap between what you say you want and what you are creating is not a mindset gap. Maybe it's a skill set gap, a strategy gap. And the conversation became more about behavioral analysis, scientific experimentation along with systematic analyses of human activity to better understand behavior change. Things like breaking the process into smaller and smaller steps, understanding the ebbs and flows of motivation, training, environment. Baby steps? It means setting small, reasonable goals for yourself one day at a time. One tiny step at a time. Baby steps. So this could bring forth the question, which is it? Is it willpower or is it strategy? I'm going to say we're not really here to answer that question today. What we're here to do is look at both sides. And the question we are going to ask is, how do you motivate and facilitate behavior change? Let's first talk about motivation. Your motivation to put something to action is fueled by a series of questions. Will it work? Can I do it? Is it worth it? These questions speak to your belief, your willpower, and your desires. Why are you doing it? What if you could style your own uniform for work? That's what Matilda Call does. She's an art director at a New York City ad agency who used to dread getting dressed for work. Three years ago, 27-year-old Matilda decided to eliminate the stress of choosing an outfit every morning. She recently wrote about her experience for Harper's Bazaar. This story hit the news in April of this year, and some of you might recall that late last year, articles were flying around the internet about successful people choosing to wear the same thing every day. The crux of most of these articles was decision-making and how successful people want to reduce any extraneous decisions they have so they can focus the majority of their energy on their purpose, vision, and responsibilities. The late Steve Jobs was known for wearing his black signature turtleneck, jeans, and sneakers. Barack Obama, navy suit, gray suit, blue tie. That's it. Albert Einstein owned several variations of the same suit, so he wouldn't have to worry about deciding what to wear. And Mark Zuckerberg, gray tee, black hoodie, and jeans. In addition to decision-making, these articles also cited some other impactful benefits for this reduction in our brain's workload. Included among them, less stress, less wasted energy, less time wasted. Wait, 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 Brett. I thought we were talking about behavior change, putting things into action, motivation. Are you trying to tell me that the secret to behavior change and motivation is simply wearing the same thing every day? Because if that's true, then I'm like super, super motivated. I've been wearing the same pants for like three weeks now. Well, first off, Nick, keep in mind that people like Matilda Kahn, Obama, and Einstein have several articles of the same items of clothing. They're wearing the same style of clothes every day, not the actual same clothes. 
But anyway, no, I'm not saying that. And perhaps I should come at this more directly. The reason I bring it up is that wearing the same outfit can be a way to conserve energy. And energy is a key component in willpower and self-control. Here is Roy Baumeister, author of the New York Times bestseller, the, the Willpower. About it. Anyway, the key point is, though, it takes energy to exert self-control, and it's a limited amount of energy. So in, in a sense, you use up uh, some of your energy, and until it uh, has a chance to replenish, uh, your willpower will be temporarily down. In a Q&A Roy did with Time Magazine, he expanded on this idea that willpower is finite, and it's level dependent on energy. He spoke of decision-making and stress as two main depleters of energy. So, if wearing the same thing each day means less decisions, less stress, and less wasted energy, well, Nick, you just might be the Mr. Universe of willpower. But I digress. One of the reasons this conversation about behavior change started to shift from motivation to facilitation over the years is because scientists started to prove that willpower was a finite resource. It's fleeting. As author-speaker James Clear wrote, as it turns out, your willpower is like a muscle. And similar to the muscles in your body, willpower can get fatigued when you use it over and over again, similar to how your muscles get tired at the end of a workout. Otherwise said, You've only got so much just do it in you. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. And so we want to understand not only how we can conserve it, but also how can we increase it? And that brings us to your desires, the why aspect of motivation. Let's talk about why. You know, many of us feel confident that we understand our own motivations. I do this because of this. But the reality is, oftentimes, we don't actually know why we do what we do. One of our biggest misconceptions is that simply being educated about a topic will change our behavior. That by knowing something is beneficial to you, or a good thing to do, or having information that makes you think, hmm, I want to do that, that any of that will actually change your behavior. And studies show it will not. Here is sociology professor Jenny Cross in her TEDx talk, Three Myths of Behavior Change. So there really are three kind of big ways that common sense leads us astray. And the first is that we think if we are going to change people's behavior, they just need education. If we just give them some information, then they'll change their behavior. What's missing in this equation is that people don't know. Let's use health as an example. Everybody knows that taking care of your body Eating healthy and exercising is good for you. We all know that the quantity and quality of our life is directly correlated to how well we take care of our bodies. And yet, how well do all of us take care of our bodies? You could spend days reading study after study after study on how exercise enhances and extends your life. You can watch documentary after documentary on what this food is doing to you and how this ingredient is killing you. And no matter how much you may be shocked, appalled, adamant that you will change, on the basis of that information alone, the majority of people will keep doing the same things they've always done. Now, this is not to say that information isn't valuable and can't be a catalyst. It can be. But in order to incite effective and sustainable action, you must link this external information to something internal in yourself. Why are you doing this? Because I want to know. 
The word motivation is derived from the Latin word motivus, meaning to be stirred or moved. It is what makes you do something or makes you move. It is only through what truly moves us that we will move, and perhaps more importantly, stay in motion. Here is Dan Pink speaking at TED on the puzzle of motivation. The good news about all this is that the scientists who've been studying motivation have given us this new approach. It's an approach built much more around intrinsic motivation, around the desire to do things because they matter, because we like it, because they're interesting, because they're part of something important. That sound familiar? Here is a clip from our Step in the Right Direction episode. And here you might ask, well, wait a second, Brett. How do we define values? I'm sure there are many definitions, but we would simply say that your values represent what is important to you, what you value, what gives you purpose. They are the driving force behind why you get up in the morning, the choices you make, and why you behave the way you do. Values. Our values are why we do things. Let's go back to health. So we have all the information on why we should be healthy. But that doesn't drive most of us to change. On the other hand, here we are, it's spring, summer is coming, and suddenly a whole lot of people are doing what it takes to get in shape. Why is that? Well, I'll suggest it's values. However, it is not a value on being healthy. If it was, they'd be healthy all year round. Most people who are always saying they want to be healthy are saying it because they don't have a high value on health. If they did, they wouldn't yo-yo. Most people who start thinking about getting in shape every spring do it because they have a high value on looking good and they think, oh man, I'm going to be going to the beach, people are going to be seeing me in my bikini or my board shorts, and I want to look good. I'm going to start eating healthy and working out. And look, I can relate. I am one of those people. Here is me confessing it in a recent interview for the Running Lifestyle podcast. I, I can tell you right now, I'm a healthy person. I've been relatively healthy my whole life. I do not have a high value on health. I know I don't because I'm always fighting it. I'm always fighting how I eat. I'm always fighting keeping – and I'm always finding ways to motivate myself to do it based on what my other values are. I can also tell you I have no problem admitting that I have a high value on vanity. Man, hearing that back, I kind of cringe. I want to say it's not true, but there's too much evidence, too many times – that I've walked by the mirror, noticed a few extra pounds, and thought, ugh, I don't look that great. And that's been my motivation to change my diet or start working out more consistently. And we need to be honest with ourselves, or we'll be working off the wrong math. If you are not honest with yourself about what your values are, you'll probably end up trying to motivate yourself through shoulds instead of wants. For this episode, we reached out to behavior scientist B.J. Fogg. B.J. runs a research lab at Stanford and is a world's expert on how to create habits. Here's what he said around shoulds. Something that feels like a want and not a should. You can get yourself to do a should once or twice or maybe for a few days, but shoulds almost never become habits. Now, there are some behaviors that are just one-time behaviors and you can, you know, get yourself to do them, but for lasting change. You know, for most of the changes people want, it's really about creating habits. And so you really should identify the behaviors you want to do that will also take you to uh, your aspiration. To me, if I have an aspiration, like to be healthy, I don't care what want gets me there. Perhaps as I get older, as my son starts running laps around me, B 
being healthy for its own sake will become a high value to me. That's likely, actually. However, for now, I will continue to use my vanity in my favor. I will continue to tap into my values around accountability and competition and sign up for events and play sports. I will continue to find ways to link my top values that drive me to aspirations I have for the man I want to be. And as we do that, our values do change. Hi, it's Nick, and I just wanted to pop in here during the middle of today's show to tell you about some cool things that are happening in the world of Where There's Smoke. But don't go anywhere because although Brett did just finish talking about motivation, we're going to pick it up uh, with a look at facilitation after the break. So don't go anywhere. There's some really cool stuff happening, and you don't want to miss it. Anyway, real quick, some exciting news. Where There's Smoke is hitting the road. We're going to be having some small meetups with our listeners in Vancouver, Chicago, and New York, and we want to see you there. So on June 24th, Brett will be in Vancouver, and uh, that's already been planned. It's great. If you want details, make sure you text the word SMOKE to 66866 or visit wherethersmoke.co. You're going to get all the information there. And, of course, we'll post it on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash WTSpod. On June 25th, Brett and I will both be in Chicago. Both of us will be there. And we don't actually have many plans for that, but we we're both going to be in town, and we'd love to see you. If you're in Chicago and want to hang out, please email us at connect at wherethersmoke.co, and we'll plan something. And who knows? It could just be the three of us alone, Brett, you, and I, and wouldn't that be fun? <laughs> and lastly, on either Friday, June 26th or 27th, there's going to be a meetup in New York City with Brett plans are being made they're a little bit up in the air but if you have ideas email us at connect at wherethersmoke.co so the 24th of june in vancouver the 25th of june in chicago the 26th or 27th in new york let's hang out and lastly thank you so much for all the wonderful itunes reviews over the last few weeks for our itunes review drive you guys are the best and if you want to know the latest who won you know who won what's going to happen make sure that you join the mailing list You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, of course, and go to our Facebook page. We do all kinds of cool things there. Facebook.com slash WTSpod. And that's it. So we'll see you on the road. We love you and enjoy the show. That covers some of the key elements of motivation and how we can both conserve and increase our willpower. The second piece of this puzzle is facilitation. How we do things is as important and often more important than why. Going back to my conversation with behavioral scientist BJ Fogg, as I mentioned to you, you know, one of, uh, one of the questions we get from our listeners is, okay, so, so the, every week we hear all these great ideas and I say, yes, I want to do that. What is the difference? Like, what is the, what's the gap between that moment where someone, say, listens to our show and goes, mm-hmm. oh my gosh, yes, I want to make that change, and then the fact that maybe they don't actually implement it? Well, I actually think the gap is a skill gap, not a motivation gap. I think changing your behavior is a skill. And some people are better than others naturally, like skills. Yeah. But like other skills, like playing the piano, cooking, dancing, speaking a foreign language, you get better when you practice. And Mm. so uh, I don't think people talk much about behavior change as a skill. But in my research at Stanford and my work outside of Stanford, I find that's absolutely true. And not only do you get better when you practice, but for many people, they are trying to do something on willpower alone that they really don't know how to do. 
Here I'll lean on one of BJ's examples. Imagine that you don't know how to swim, and someone throws you in the water in the middle of a lake and says, swim! And they start motivating you by offering you thousands of dollars if you swim, and they're telling you, hey, everyone's watching and you don't want to be embarrassed by drowning. I'm willing to bet that no amount of motivation is going to help you succeed in this situation. And so the facilitation of making things real lives in your skills and your behavior. Yes, you need the drive, but no matter how big the aha or the want is, what has to change to get there, and especially to stay there, is what you do. And when we are talking about change over time, that is your habits. Here is the author of Transform Your Habits, James Clear. I think a lot of times we get wrapped up in these transformation stories, right? Especially in like the weight loss industry yeah. or in, you know, building muscle. I mean, everybody gets, gets all jacked up about hearing about a transformation. And that's great that you can get inspired about that. But if you look at what actually generates change for people, it comes down to like daily decisions, daily habits. Your behavior, your habits are the bridge between your aspirations and your outcomes. So first we need to identify what are the behaviors that you want, that you need to achieve your desired outcome. Overall, I call uh, what I do at Stanford and outside, I call it behavior design. Okay. And one of the steps in behavior design is what I call magic wanding, where you basically said, if I could wave a magic wand and get, in this case, myself to do anything, if you're designing a product, it's like get my customer to do anything. And so you come up with a, a bunch of behaviors uh, that you would wish for, and then you make those behaviors very specific, which I call crispification. And then the next step, so say you have 40 different behaviors to reduce stress, is selecting among them, and that method I call focus mapping. And so at the end of the focus map, you have uh, one or two items in the focus zone, and that's what you design for. And then make that behavior really easy to do is the next step. And there's different ways to make it easy to do. Sometimes it's scaling the behavior back to something much simpler. Sometimes it's getting a tool or a resource. Sometimes it's getting training. So that behavior is easier to do. And then the last step is to make sure there's a prompt or a reminder, what I call a trigger. Make sure there's something that will remind you to do that behavior. Okay. And those are the steps. Behavior change is a long distance run. It is not a sprint. There's a big difference between what motivates us to achieve and what motivates us to sustain something in the long term. New Year's resolutions are a perfect example of what happens when people try and sprint. In fact, less than 10% of people succeed at their resolutions, and most people fail within the first three weeks. You know, I often say that it seems to me that people don't actually set New Year's resolutions. They seem to set new January resolutions. They try to do it all at once, and most of them end up imploding. One of the key strategies to creating a habit is to start small and build yourself up to the overall outcome. Now, the main thing you are doing here is building automaticity, the ability to do things without occupying the mind with the low-level details required, allowing something to become automatic. Flossing all your teeth is not that hard, but it's sort of hard for people who haven't done it before. And the problem there isn't that you don't know how to floss all your teeth. You do. You just don't know how to do it automatically. And so what you then do is focus on making that an automatic behavior uh, rather than the entire behavior. And so you scale it back to like flossing one tooth 
and then you figure out how to make that automatic in your life. So you really focus on training the automaticity. Now here's the cool thing. When you do this, when you create tiny habits, small actions that you perform consistently, you are strengthening the metaphoric muscles it takes to create behavior change. Because not only are you building the skill, whatever it is, you are also practicing consistency and discipline and you are fueling your motivation. I've always kind of felt like part of why that's effective is it's also actually, you know, building your self-esteem. It's kind of, it's yeah. giving you these constant, like, like if I say I'm going to do one push-up every day and I do it every day, I actually feel as good as someone who said they were going to do a hundred push-ups because what I'm, the feeling actually comes from doing what you say you're going to do in some ways, yeah. right? So is that fair exactly. to say that it actually yeah, builds? It, it, it's right on. You're exactly right. Our brain seems to be uh, not very good at distinguishing between big successes and tiny successes. And it's way easier to get the tiny successes. And, you know, as you know, uh, probably from your work and from talking to other people, and certainly it shows in my work, is that success leads to success. Mm. And so really, it's about how do you create a series of successes? And it's not the size of the success, it's the frequency of the successes that end up helping you do more and end up helping you persevere if you run into roadblocks. So as we put all this together, we start to see a strategy of motivation and facilitation to make change real. But what about keeping it real? It's a lot easier to, I mean, it's not easy, but relatively speaking, it's easier to feel motivated while you're trying to change your behavior and you're reinforced on an ongoing basis by your progress than it is once you reach your goal to continue to feel motivated when nothing is changing. It's kind of like running in place. Are you really getting anywhere? And pretty quickly, the novelty of having reached your goal wears off. And then where does the motivation come from? That was clinical psychologist and where there's smoke listener, Jason Lasner. And I think many of us have experienced this in our life when changing a habit. Often we have a lot of drive to get there, but staying there, well, that's another matter. Jason and his business partner, psychologist Ann Green, have been helping others successfully change their behavior for 20 years. One of their biggest hopes is that they can change the conversations people have with themselves when they fail to sustain a behavior and start blaming themselves. As if we are weak, as if just doing it is something that works for everybody else and we're the unfortunate ones, the pathetic ones that can't just stick with the plan. And that is a trap. He goes on to say, and what we expect is it's just a matter of determination, willpower, grit, you know, and the underlying implication is just do it every day. And we can't just do it every day. That doesn't work for anybody. And the research clearly shows that within two to five years, most people that reach their behavior change goals relapse. Jason and Ann have chosen the term steadiness to describe an alternative to willpower that anyone can develop and that provides the fuel for sustaining a behavior change and the habits that support that change. It is a three-step sequence, getting calm, trusting yourself, and letting go. Before I have Jason expand on these three steps, let me share what I love most about this idea of steadiness. 
As I teach and train individuals and companies all over the world and work on my own self-development, no matter the skill we are working on, whether it be behavior change, being a great speaker, influencing, communication, so much of success is about how do we effectively stay consciously aware and present in the moment so that we can do what we mentally want to do instead of what we emotionally might revert to. And to me, that's what steadiness is training you to do. Here is Jason going over the three-step sequence, starting with step one, getting calm, and answering my question on what they suggest is the best method to use. Well, the thing about getting calm is that whatever method someone identifies for themselves is the one that works. We don't prescribe a specific method. Some people learn to um, do deep breathing exercises or mindfulness meditation or listening to soft music, whatever works to allow you to begin to reduce your level of physical and mental tension after a busy day. And the second step is what we call trusting yourself. Once you're feeling relatively calm, you can learn to tune into your gut instincts or what some people might refer to as an inner voice that represents the accumulated wisdom from all of your life experiences to date. And that internal compass provides very helpful guidance in moments of confusion or indecision. But you can't tune in the signal for that internal compass unless you're relatively calm and clear-headed. And then letting go is really identifying the guidance that you get once you're quiet and you can hear what's going on inside you and learning to follow it. And that just takes practice. We encourage people to practice the three-step sequence every day for a month before they even begin changing their behavior. Did you register what he just said? I love that suggestion. Jason's speaking to making an investment in changing your mindset and getting grounded in yourself first before you even start to take on a behavior change. I want to close out today's show by highlighting a key idea that seemed to flow through this entire exploration, from the idea for the show through the research and the conversations. And it is a phrase that many of you have heard me say before, and if I weren't being turned into a tree pod when I die, it would be written on my tombstone. And that is, we're all in this together. If you think about it, this episode only exists because Richard and a few other listeners reached out and said, I want support. Then, in my conversation with Jason, he said this. The other thing I would highlight is the fact that we don't believe anybody can successfully change by themselves. Changing alone really, you know, fails when it comes to behavior change. And when I asked BJ Fogg if there was one parting message he had, these were his words. What's not really well understood is the importance of changing together, changing with other people, as opposed to trying to change alone. If you alone are trying to change, say, how you eat, and everybody else in your household is eating the same old way, you will, even if you change, it will be temporary. You will very, very likely relapse. And so what we're trying to do is shine a spotlight on the, in some ways, the futility of changing alone while those in your household are not changing in the same way and the advantages of changing together. And I think in the future that will be the default way of changing your behavior, not an unusual way. 
It seems a bit counterproductive to think that on a planet where we are surrounded by over 7.3 billion people, our default method of change is to do it alone. And yet, I think we've all been witnesses to our own efforts to grind it out alone. I was struck recently by psychologist Kelly McGonigal's TED Talk entitled, How to Make Stress Your Friend. In her closing segment, she spoke of an aspect of stress response that I think very few people are aware of. And I really want you to listen to this. And as you do, think about how stressful behavior change can be and how often we try to manage that stress, that process, all on our own. Here, Kelly is revealing that during stress, our body releases oxytocin, the same hormone that is released when we hug or kiss someone, a hormone that fine-tunes your brain's social instincts, makes you crave physical contact with friends and family, and enhances your empathy. But here's what most people don't understand about oxytocin. It's a stress hormone. Your pituitary gland pumps this stuff out as part of the stress response. It's as much a part of your stress response as the adrenaline that makes your heart pound. And when oxytocin is released in the stress response, it is motivating you to seek support. Your biological stress response is nudging you to tell someone how you feel instead of bottling it up. Your stress response wants to make sure you notice when someone else in your life is struggling so that you can support each other. When life is difficult, your stress response wants you to be surrounded by people who care about you. Hello, even our bodies don't want us to go through this process of change alone. And they don't want us to let others go through it alone. Forget about a sign from the universe. This is your biological self telling you that we're all in this together. And so perhaps we can add a third word to our duo of motivation and facilitation. And that word is participation. That the third piece of this puzzle called behavior change is the power of getting others involved and being aware of the surroundings in which we are working to make these changes. And that together, we can maximize our motivation, facilitate the process, and participate in creating and sustaining behaviors that serve the man or the woman we want to be. This show is coming to an end, but the good times are just beginning. Be sure to check out BJ Fogg's website at bjfogg.com and also check out a video of an awesome training he did on habit design for rock health. Just Google BJ Fogg rock health and you'll find it. More information on steadiness can be found at readysteadychange.com. Lots of resources, including Jason and Ann's book called The Roadmap, which puts the process of change into an easy read fable that can help you power your own change. Big, big gratitude to so many people this week. Celebrity nutrition and fitness expert JJ Virgin for tweeting us that she's hooked on where there's smoke and extending incredible generosity to me personally this week in many, many ways. Nicole's curated life blog for including us in her weekly love list and tons of love on Twitter this week. Hintwater CEO Kara Golden. Both our products are infused with goodness and have no sugar. Eric Zimmer of the One You Feed podcast. 
do your good wolf a favor and check out that show. It was named Best of 2014 by iTunes last year, and I love it. Tony Wrighton of the Zestology podcast, at Tell Misty, Victor Kuna, at Dare You to Blog, Abby Cox and Kate Threefall, Randy Wilkinson, Britt Bartley, and Matthew Curry-Holmes for sharing as he goes in the binge listening process. Renee Keen, we super appreciated your email. Many fantastic iTunes reviews this week as well, and a couple of great nicknames. Guthrie Chamberlain III, Dominic Shackleton, Can I Get a Witness? KR Chicago, Dr. Ryan Gray, my favorite nickname of the week, Mama Pajama the Avenger. The Mama Pajama rolled out of bed and she ran to the police station. When the papa found out, he began to shout and he started the investigation. Celeste Hyde, T-Spot, and Tricky B9 who wrote, I hope you guys produce a thousand shows. That's 19 years of work, but I get the sense you have so much fun making this that this might not be as tough as it sounds. Well, B9, it is kind of as tough as it sounds, but there's no doubt that this show keeps our internal fire going. So as long as we can eventually find a way to keep the external lights on, we are happy to set our sights on a thousand shows. To anyone who shared their passion for the show this week with others on social media, email, text, word of mouth, we are beyond grateful. You can find us on social media. I am at Brett Guida and Nick is at Podcast Monster on Twitter. And you can also find Where There's Smoke on Facebook. Join our mailing list by phone. Text the word SMOKE to 66866 or go to our website, www.wherethersmoke.co. While you are there, you can also find a link to show notes, which includes a list of all the clips used in the show. Where There's Smoke is motivated, facilitated, written, edited, created baby step by baby step, changed and sustained by me, Brett Guida and Nick Jaworski. If you are interested in your podcast sounding awesome, check out Nick at Podcast Monster. And if you're interested in working with me as a speaker, coach or collaborator, just email connect at wherethersmoke.co. Our theme song is written and performed by Des McKinney with additional music by Kevin McLeod. Our MVP of this week is you. We are 20 shows in, and without our listeners, we'd just be talking to ourselves every week. So thank you for your contribution. And with that, I turn it over to the movie version of one of my favorite books, and a reminder that there is always time for change, and taking life on is a lifetime commitment. You're going to live a long time, Ron. You should make a radical change in your lifestyle. I mean, the core of man's spirit comes from new experiences. And there you are, stubborn old man, sitting on your butt. Sitting on my butt? Yeah. Ha! I'll show you, sitting on my butt. Stubborn old man. Thank you for listening. We love you. Come on, then. See you next week.